From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit the, hit the red subscribe button. So we are uh, continuing to talk about the UFO incident at Roswell, July of 1947, days after something shiny crashed in the New Mexico desert. The Roswell Army Airfield issued a press release that read the military had recovered the remains of a flying disc. The story was quickly changed to the recovery of a weather balloon, and um, that story would change several more times over the years. Uh, we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, albeit three months early. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition, is now out. Co-authors Don Schmidt and Tom Carey are here. So um, we were talking about uh, Anthony Bragal. Is it Bragalia? Uh, Bragalia. Regalia, Regalia. Yes. And uh, he issued this uh, FOIA request and, uh, you know, looking for the uh, possess who possessed the, the Roswell UFO debris. And he was told uh, that the government no longer is in possession and that it is now in the possession of Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace. So when Regalia released this information, how was he how was he treated by the oh. UFO community? Well, you know, Richard, there's a, a lot of people in the UFO community, believe it or not, that don't like Roswell. You know, they have their own little specialties, uh, you know, other phenomena, uh, crop circles, cattle mutilations, that sort of stuff. So uh, he was called, uh, they said uh, they accused him of revealing government secrets. They said he uh, is guilty of treason. All sorts of stuff where you would think like, oh boy, at last we know where it's at. And this is not from uh, information from Uncle Harry. It came from the Department of an, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency in, in Washington. So you would think it would be, you know, like the uh, clouds are parting and the sun is bright. And it was anything but that. Uh, he received a lot of abuse. Some of it out of out of jealousy from other uh, uh, researchers, but others uh, were just uh, they, they don't like the Roswell case, and the government tried to, uh, to walk it back, like oh, oh oh no we we weren't talking about UFOs we were talking about just uh, met, met, metallurgical research. Well, it was too late for that because Anthony already had it in writing of where it, where the wreckage is and what they're doing with it. So it was a mixed uh, bag, uh, Richard, of uh, response where I thought it would have been universal, uh, at least uh, non-governmental, uh, universal uh, applause for Tony. And, uh, you know, at last we know, but it was uh, it was mixed. Well, I mean, no, Richard, that this is story should have been bigger than the New York Times piece in December 2017, don't you think? Yes, 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 if, uh, if oh, not only these people would uh, have any research backgrounds regarding 
you know, the military slash government. I mean, how many people aren't even aware of the fact that the United States military slash government doesn't manufacture anything? Everything is contracted out into the public sector. And lest we forget, you know, Dwight, President Dwight Eisenhower's, you know, dire warning about the military-industrial complex taking over the government here in, in, in the United States. And through the years, Tom and I, we've interviewed first-hand witnesses. He had mentioned, like, uh, not only, you know, we had Wright Pat, but Patel Institute. We had Los Alamos. But we also had Boeing. We had Lockheed. We had Hughes Aircraft. We had Rand Corporation. We had the Bureau of Standards all talking about testing this exotic material from Roswell in 1947. And so, is it any wonder that as they were waiting for a breakthrough, they were hoping that somebody would finally find the on button to, you know, this, this new technology way beyond human comprehension. And that through the years, as, you know, they would get, you know, this report, well, we, we need another year. We need five more years. We're working on it. We're working on it. Unless we also forget that just within the last year, the late Senator Harry Reid also publicly made the statement, and I know there too, it was reeled back, it was retracted, but he made the statement that it was his information that Lockheed was in possession of some of this wreckage, some of this hardware. And so they keep waving this carrot. They dangle this carrot that, yes, we have wreckage, we have hardware. And so they play this, this shell game with us. And what Tom and I are saying is that they have acknowledged, we have people such as Luis Elizondo, who, you know, will make, you know, that actual uh, statement that, yes, they are in possession of the physical wreckage recovered in whatever manner, shape, or form they did, that we have, you know, pieces of a genuine flying saucer. So all we're trying to do is now determine where this, where it may be. And so we can't even make a suggestion, as Tom just described, without colleagues within the UFO community jumping on it and saying, well, you know, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're, you're making such a claim without having any evidence. Well, if we haven't already established that a crash took place in 47, then the next logical question becomes, where is it? And I'm sorry if we're performing due process in now trying to determine where it is. And we feel that the government has already acknowledged that they, too, are trying to find out where the remnants presently remain. Well, has anyone gone to Bigelow and asked? Uh, Robert Bigelow, I mean, is he still alive? I don't know if he's still alive. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, no, it's... Publicly, they, they, they don't want to know. They, they don't want to know, and they certainly don't want us to know. But Harry Reid certainly knew, because uh, uh, it was Bigelow who got uh, Reid interested in UFOs when Bigelow was doing all these contracted projects for the government already, uh, space-related. I think it's called Bigelow Aerospace uh, Systems or something like that. He was already in the space business. And he got Harry Reid interested, and it was Harry Reid who got the the A-tip uh, project going. So, 
you know, uh, uh, government senators, Congress people, uh, they don't most they don't want to get near this subject. They don't want to get near this subject. And uh, uh, Marco Rubio, a senator from Florida, uh, I thought uh, quite courageously uh, was the one I believe in the Senate who uh, tasked the. Uh, Defense Department, the Pentagon, with uh, putting a report together that he gave them 180 days. Uh, President Trump signed the the uh, uh, law. It was part of, I believe, a COVID COVID type uh, law, uh, and uh, he gave them 180 days from December of 2019 to have a report. Which which they did. So, but most of your senators and Congress people, they they don't want to get near this subject. Uh, and that all goes back to the mid 1950s with the so-called contactee people who were coming out of the woodwork saying that they had just been whisked around mm-hmm. the solar system by our space brothers. And that I mean that really damaged the whole phenomenon for decades. And uh, so. No, I, I don't think any of the senators or congresspeople are asking anything about this other than, um, you know, when the when the report came out. And, and what but about Bregalia? Uh, Has he gone back to to Robert Bigelow and, and pressed him on this issue? Oh, he tried to get to Bigelow. Yes, he yes, he did. Uh, he couldn't get past the uh, Praetorian guards. Uh, he tried to uh, contact Bigelow, and uh, he finally uh, reached the uh, l- former lawyer for Bigelow Aerospace. He's, re- he's retired now, but he finally interviewed the lawyer because everybody was saying, oh, you want to talk to this guy? No, you want to talk to that guy? And he finally got to the lawyer of Bigelow, and uh, the uh, lawyer, uh, when he started asking penetrating questions about these projects, the lawyer hung up on him. See, Richard, what we also have to consider is that uh, Bigelow's name has been bandied about for many years now. In fact, most probably aren't aware of the fact is that Bigelow was with us in New Mexico back in uh, around 1991. And that's where he first got his feet wet regarding this subject. I know he had 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 an experience many years before, but this is where he went public. And wouldn't you know that everybody and their father's son were lining up with these pet projects that uh, they, uh, you know, presented their wish lists about Bigelow, you know, providing special grants and funding. And I, I joke, for example, that I knew Robert Bigelow when he was just a multimillionaire. And so <laughs> many of our colleagues, the very same ones that now are, you know, casting, you know, this this gloom and doom about us continuing to, you know, working on Roswell, were the very ones that ruined our relationship with Robert Bigelow. So if not that, if that not being the case, we probably would still have an open door. And we may have those answers that uh, we've been searching for. But uh, you notice that whether it's Christopher Mellon or Luis Elizondo or even the late Harry Reid, the one person who is strangely absent in all of this and has been since the, the 2017 New York Times story is Robert Bigelow. 
Vending, yeah, he's been awfully quiet. I mean, he made that he made that famous appearance on 60 Minutes talking about UFOs. I'm not sure what year that was. Was, was that 54. after 20 or before uh, December 2017? Do you remember that interview? Yes, absolutely. And he was right in the reporter's face, telling her, "You know, you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, you you, you don't have any knowledge of exactly what information." They, that the government has regarding, you know, the situation. And that has been the last, Richard. And uh, I'd like to believe that there's something forthcoming, but we, as Tom would also note, that Bigelow Aerospace, how many people, they laid off everybody, correct, Tom, during COVID? Everybody. They laid off everybody when this uh, stuff started to arrive. And they started building new facilities, so it's not like it's closed mm-hmm. down. They built new facilities, windowless. They don't have windows, and he laid off everybody, except the people working on the projects. Do we know? Um, I mean, we hear about these, you know these little tiny pieces and the memory metal and so forth. Is it possible that there are? larger pieces of the craft that survived that we just we didn't hear about um all we hear about are little tiny pieces most of them were little tiny pieces richard like the uh, size of the palm of your hand but uh because it, it blew up and it didn't crash it blew up in the air we believe it was from a lightning strike uh or an internal explosion it's just just speculation but that's what we believe but the the inner cabin survived. There was an inner cabin, according to witnesses who found it, uh, that survived the explosion and came to rest uh, 35 miles uh, east-southeast of the so-called debris field that Mac Brazel uh, discovered. So, yes, there, there was a larger portion of the craft, like I said, the inner cabin or an escape capsule of some sort, that did survive. Instrument and panel? even... We, we were even fortunate enough to interview the paper boys in downtown Roswell on Main Street who worked for, you know, the two newspapers, the Roswell Daily Record and the Roswell Dispatch. And they would, you know, be, you know, peddling their papers on opposite sides of Main Street. And both of them now, as grown adults, describing to us how they witnessed the convoy, you know, arrive from north of town, and with the low boy, the flatbed truck with the tarped egg-shaped silhouette underneath this canvas covering as it proceeded under heavy guard, you know, back to the base. And so... Right right down Main Street. Right down Main Street. And one of the things that tipped us off, one of the things that always pointed to something much closer to Roswell, the debris field is 65 miles northwest in another county, Lincoln. Roswell is in Chavez County. And the fact that why would the sheriff of Chavez County and his deputies and why would firemen from Roswell uh, go to another county out of their jurisdiction? I mean, it doesn't happen. And yet it kept pointing to something just north of town. It kept pointing to something being uh, separate from the debris field. And as Tom just mentioned, the impact site with the remains of the capsule, the cabin, and then the remains of the crew. Well, which brings me to um, little Joe Montoya, the uh, lieutenant governor of New Mexico. Now, he died in the 
late 1970s, I think. So um, did you ever interview – well, let's tell the story. We've, we've, tell, we've told it before. You've told it before on the program, but for those who are new to the show, tell us a little bit about little Joe Montoya, uh, then lieutenant governor of New Mexico, and what he saw at the, uh, the Army field. Yes, uh, we, we did not interview little Joe Montoya directly. We got the story from uh, one of his staffers uh, that, that worked for him uh, in the Senate. Uh, he be, he, in 1947, he was the lieutenant mm-hmm. governor of uh, New Mexico. And at the time of the crash, uh, he was uh, in, in Roswell. And uh, he was down uh, down there for some uh, occasion when the bodies and the wreckage started coming in. He was already on the base, or it was either he was already on the base or, or he was ordered to go to the base. I'm, I don't recall which it was, but he found himself on the base, and uh, he was inter- interviewing some of his loyal uh, Montoyistas, uh, young supporters of little Joe Mon- Montoya. And uh, so he headed over to the base hangar, one of one of the hangars there, hangar uh, P3 back in uh, 1947, building 84. It's still there today, although most of the other stuff is gone. But uh, he went over to the hangar to uh, interview some of his, uh, he was told there were some loyal Montoyistas over there. So he went over there and he ran right into the recovery operation. And uh, so he... He goes into the hangar and he sees the wreckage, but what really set him off was viewing the little bodies. He saw the little bodies and he lost it. So he, uh, he goes to the phone, he, he, all, he calls one of his uh, uh, Montoyistas and Roswell, get over here quick, get over here quick, get me the hell out of here, get me out of here. And so. Uh, Meet me at the big, big uh, water tower, which is still there. So uh, he calls uh, the Montoya, the Anaya brothers, Reuben and Pete uh, Anaya, and so they come over to pick him up, and out bolts Montoya from the hangar, runs to the car, jumps in the back seat. Let's get the hell out of here! And so. According to the Anaya brothers, uh, on the drive out of the base to uh, Pete Anaya's house, he's rocking back and forth in the in the back seat, rocking back and forth. Oh my God! Oh my God! They weren't human. They weren't human. They weren't human. So they get to Pete Anaya's house, and uh, he says, "Oh, I need a drink. I need a drink." So, <clears throat> so they, <coughs> excuse me, they bring in a little little. Uh, a shot glass of uh, Jim Beam, and gulp, gulp, right down. Oh, I need some more. That's not enough. So he he gulps down the bottle of Jim Beam in three gulps. The the uh, Reuben and I had described it as bam, 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 and the bottle was gone. <laughs> and so he goes over. I got to lay down. So he laid down on the couch, went to sleep. But it was not a uh, restful sleep. He just kept. Uh, you know, nervously uh, twitching and moving around. He just couldn't sleep right. And uh, so finally he, uh, he he got to sleep and woke up later and uh, he says, okay, take me to my uh, hotel. He was staying at the Nixon Hotel. That's uh, spelled N-I-C-K-S-I-N, not N-I-X-O-N. <laughs> at the Nixon Hotel in Roswell. 
And uh, so we got the story from, uh, 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 what is it, Pete Anaya's son, John, John uh, Anaya, who was a staffer. And I said, did you, did you, did uh, uh, Matoya tell you the story mm-hmm. about at Roswell? He said, yes, he did tell me. I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, yeah, I believed him. I believed him. But uh, Anaya told me, he said, if you ever tell that story to anybody, I will deny it. So that's how we got the story. I believe it. I think Don believes it. And uh, it was quite a reaction uh, to a U.S. Uh, he was lieutenant governor. I think he became senator in 1964, uh, replacing Dennis Chavez, the former uh, senator. And I don't recall when he passed away. But, I think it was uh, 1978. I was looking, um, and and I'm guessing never spoke of it again. Correct. Not publicly. Not publicly. All right. Well, I got to take like another time out, gentlemen. Yeah. Stay with us. Yeah, back we, with more of our conversation. The 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. We'll also take questions from the live chat. Get them ready, and uh, Ryan will, uh, my live stream producer, will curate those, and we'll get them on the air. Stay with us. Donald R. Schmidt and Thomas J. Carey, co-authors of Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition. How do we get a copy? Well, the book is available certainly on on Amazon as well as uh, Barnes & Noble, all fine bookstores uh, throughout the country. All right. Um, So we were talking about little Joe Montoya, and I'd asked – Later, he became senator. He saw the bodies. He never spoke of it again. You said at least publicly. Uh, did did he did he speak of it again privately? And has that information come forward? We we, we only know the story from uh, the Anaya uh, brothers and uh, their son John. Uh, we never spoke to uh, uh, to uh, little Joe. Uh, and I, I am unaware, I don't know if Don is or not, I'm unaware that he ever spoke again publicly about it. No, but because uh, we had entered the investigation a, a good decade after he had passed away, as Tom mentioned, we interviewed the uh, Anayas, we interviewed um, Mary Anaya, uh, Pete's uh, uh, wife, and she even described the military coming to their home, and there was a argument that ensued out in the front yard and uh, that Mary was then told by her husband that they were warned that if they ever talked about this that uh, they would be killed over the situation. And then uh, later we even tracked down, we, we talked, we sat and met with uh, Montoya's private pilot who went by the name Red Warley. And we spent a morning with him at a uh, Denny's restaurant and uh, he wouldn't acknowledge even that much but we tripped him up on a number of things and we we came away clearly convinced that he was uh, not only the pilot but that he fully was aware of the story the US Army threatened the lieutenant governor of the state of New Mexico that he'd be killed if he talked about it well no this would have been the um, the Anayas Right. Yeah, that if they repeated anything talk. that they would have heard from the lieutenant yeah, governor. Sheriff, Sheriff Wilcox of Chavez County 
based in Roswell. He was fluent in Spanish, so they used him to issue the death threats to the Hispanic community in and around Roswell. And uh, the Anayas, uh, we, we learned from Pete and uh, Mary and uh, Reuben that uh, the sheriff pulls up in front of their house, so they figure, oh, what what does Sheriff Wilcox want? He's probably, you know, wants to, you know, a nice visit. Well, Sheriff Wilcox came to their house to issue the death warning that if they talked about this, they would not only be killed, but also their children and uh, other family members would be killed if they spoke publicly about what they knew about the little Joe. My word. Um, the the pilots that flew the wreckage to Fort Worth and to Wright Pad, uh, did they also fly the bodies? Well, there were numerous flights. In fact, uh, the, the first flight would have been the Pappy Henderson we flight, we, uh, flight, we believe. Um, he was a member of the Green Hornets, O.W. Henderson, one of the best pilots in the U.S. military at that time, and he flew a C-54 cargo plane that went directly to Wright Field. And in his case, when he confessed to his uh, wife, Saffel, as well as his daughter, that he flew not only wreckage, but uh, a number of the bodies that he even witnessed the bodies at the very hangar Tom had mentioned earlier, P-3, Building 84. And then you had the, the subsequent, uh, the uh, Marcel flight, originally on its way to Wright Field, and then with the stop at Fort Worth for the balloon press conference, that was uh, on a B-29 called Dave's Dream. And then there was a flight that came in from Washington that... Uh, a counterintelligence master sergeant non-commissioned officer Lewis Rickett described to us and uh, he handled a box of uh, debris up into the cockpit recognized the pilot who would later he would later talk to thereafter we recount that story in the book and then we have uh, another flight that went out on uh, Wednesday July 9th involved the uh, 393rd bomb squadron we tracked down and talked to as many of that crew who were still alive, and they all confirmed the flight of a large wooden crate that was hidden in bomb pit number one. Uh, that was a B-29 called Straight Flush, and uh, they flew directly to uh, Fort Worth and were convinced that was the second load of bodies that went out from Roswell. Do we have uh, any sort of chain of, of custody of the bodies after that? The, uh, the bodies, the one we lose track of is the live one. The, the dead ones, we believe there were four dead and one, one alive of the crew. The, uh, like, Don, like Don said, the first flight was the Pappy Henderson flight of uh, July the 8th. It went directly to uh, Wright Field. And the second one uh, was a day later. This was the one with the big crate, July 9. Uh, uh, 1947. That was supposed to uh, go to Wright Field directly, but it went to Fort Worth first. And uh, what's interesting about that flight, it was a 55-minute flight from uh, Roswell Field to uh, uh, Fort Worth in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, was that when the flight was landing in Fort Worth, one of the uh, 
officers on the, the street plus recognized a mortician friend of his waiting in on the tarmac for the flight along with the, uh, the officers on the base he recognized a, a mortician now what would a mortician be doing waiting for a flight from roswell with a big box in it with uh, guess what so uh, those were the body flights uh, and, and don has already uh, uh, alluded to those and we have a witness on the tarmac, or I'm sorry, on uh, in uh, on right field, when that flight arrived, and he said that now this would be the Pappy Henderson flight. He says the C-54, and out from the cargo uh, came three stretchers, and they were moving really quickly towards the medical building. These three stretchers, and this one fellow who was uh, there at right field for a physical to whether he was going to remain on flight status. He, he actually failed his test, but he said he saw these three stretchers come out of the C-54 and uh, quickly went into the medical facility. And all he remembers, he didn't know any details, but he said they were very short and frail, but they had large egg-shaped heads. So that's what he remembered from that. So uh, little interesting stories like that. Now, Rich, you had mentioned, yeah. you had asked about the, like, the chain of custody. One of the things that, um, you know, suggested the extraordinary situation was at the weather balloon press conference in General Ramey's office at Fort Worth. He canceled, in front of the press, the resumption of that flight, which was to then continue uh, to its original destination at Wright Field that the material was going to be tested and analyzed. Well, Ramey canceled that. Well, if you go to all the press accounts at that time, that was incorrect. And specifically, there was an FBI telex that went out at 6.17 that very evening from the Dallas FBI Bureau office, which refuted that. It stated that based on their telephonic, their telephone conversations with Wright Field, it was not a weather balloon, it was something else, and it was going on the right field for testing and analysis. And then there were even press accounts that reporters got uh, spokespeople from the Pentagon that even stated that the material was at right field for testing and analysis. So that's a matter of historic fact, that all the press accounts beyond Ramey's cancellation of such testing, it did actually take place all right we have to take another time out here when we come back we'll get uh, we've got lots of great questions from our live chat for don schmidt tom carey the 75th anniversary of roswell stay with us more to come all right let's go to the youtube live chat uh mark hemphill asks either uh, don or tom could ufos be held at fort knox Fort Knox, did he say? <laughs> well, that's where they're supposed to keep the gold, but some su suggest there's no gold there, so they might have rooms for some UFOs. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll let Don take that one. Oh, thank you. No, no, you are right. You are correct, Richard. We we hear more than ever that uh, whatever gold was uh, being stored and preserved there has long been removed, and so I'm sure it would provide ample space for for something 
else, you know, on a such, uh, you know, a secured facility, such a secured facility. But uh, we've occasionally had people suggest that, but we've never had any testimony or any reason to believe that. It's only been suggested. And I think uh, because, uh, obviously, such a uh, uh, facility as Fort Knox would be considered one of the most secure, you know, areas, you know, of, of the world for that matter. And, uh, but again, well, I, no information I, I, to that regard. I've never heard that one until Richard just asked. I never heard that one. <laughs> I've come across it a number of times, but like I said, okay. that was as far as it went because we've never had any witnesses, even second or third, uh, you know, make that suggestion. All right. Um, Thinker is asking about writing on the craft. Uh, something uh, he's he's referring it to to it as quote end quote angel writing. Any markings on the craft? The uh, wreckage, we, we know the, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. spoke of the uh, symbols on these uh, things he called little I-beams. Uh, they had uh, little pastel uh, shapes of, you know, un- unintelligent, un- un- uh, decipherable uh, markings on these I-beams. It was also reported that there were there some some uh, uh, symbols on the, in some of the wreckage. It, it, uh, uh, there's not a whole lot on that. I believe at some point uh, our investigation tried to get a uh, linguist to try to decipher some of the writing, but it was undecipherable. But uh, uh, I'm not sure about that. But I think Don Don was involved in that. <laughs> All right. Uh, JT asks, supposedly the military ordered – oh, now we're getting to the Glenn Dennis um, uh, story here, the uh, mortician at the Ballard Funeral Home. Uh, The military ordered a mortician to construct small coffins. Well, they ordered him – they asked him to to order some uh, for the bodies. Why would they even need coffins per se if they weren't going to have a burial for them? Good question. So the Glenn Dennis testimony, he got a call from the Army Airfield asking him for – you know, tiny, childlike coffins. Uh, good question. Why would they need coffins if they weren't going to bury them? Did he deliver those coffins? Well, the one feature of the Glenn Dennis testimony that we do accept, that we do uh, agree on, because we have multiple witnesses that uh, also heard within days that Glenn had received phone calls from the base hospital that someone was inquiring as to not only preservation techniques for remains, for bodies that had been exposed to the elements for a number of days, but then specifically as to, as you mentioned, Richard, the availability of child-sized caskets. And um, the information at the time was that they did not have any in stock, but uh, we had also the good fortune of receiving information secondhand, but from the son of supposedly the contract driver who typically would make the drive, the long drive up to Amarillo, Texas from Roswell and pick up, you know, just uh, caskets in general. And that uh, the son recalled how they were child sized, that they made the long drive, they returned back to Roswell and this, the, the town, the city, had been pretty much cordoned off, that they had to circle from the east to the west side of town, 
before his father was able to uh, drop him off at home and wouldn't return to the next morning. And that uh, the caskets were taken out to uh, the base hospital, and uh, they did not involve children. So they kind of put two and two together that maybe it had something to do with the rumors of that crash-flying saucer north of town. So uh, uh, Tom was more involved as far as with the nurse at the Ballard Funeral Home, who uh, actually would have uh, responded and then filled that order for these child-sized caskets. So there was a nurse, but it wasn't someone who was out at the base at that time. It was someone who was actually on contract with the Ballard Funeral Home. I'll let Tom take that. All right. Yes, this gets back. This is the part of the Glenn Dennis uh, story that we don't believe Glenn was actually involved in, that he picked it up from somebody else. But we we do believe his uh, uh, story about receiving the phone calls about the caskets from about a half a dozen people who remember him talking about it. He added this other part that uh, he had gone out uh, to the base uh, delivering a injured uh, airman who was injured in an automobile or accident and uh, the the Ballard Funeral Home also had the contract uh, ambulance contract uh, and uh, I don't know about you I, I I don't think I like to be taken to the hospital in a hearse it's it one stop shopping uh, that's not a good <laughs> exactly. look you know <laughs> so well while Glenn was at the hospital so he said uh, he uh, ran into his nurse friend there. He did not recognize a lot of the people and doctors there, and his nurse friend said, Glenn, you better get out of here. Uh, you're going to get into trouble. And he didn't, you know, what, what what's going on? So uh, he winds up getting escorted out by a red-haired captain and telling him, uh, go home and you'd never come back here. You're not supposed to be here, blah, 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 blah. So uh, it turns out that, uh, it's, I mean, we searched for Glenn's nurse because he gave us a uh, name, uh, Naomi Mar- or Maria Naomi Self. I might, I might have that backwards, uh, but uh, Maria Naomi Self or Naomi Maria Self, one of those two. And we spent two years looking for her. There never was such a person uh, in the military and uh, she allegedly had crashed over in England, so we couldn't interview her. So we said, we went back to Glenn and said, Glenn, there's no, there's no such a person. He said, well, I gave you a, a phony name. Oh, that's just great. I mean, we spent two years of our own time and money looking for her, and it was phony. So right away, in a court of law, he would be impeached. He would be impeached and, as a witness. So, All right. I've got to, sorry, uh, Tom, i got to take another time out. This was a short segment. We'll come back and we'll pick up on the Glenn Dennis story and that nurse and uh, also more questions from our live chat. Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, 75th anniversary of Roswell. Back with more in a moment. And a few minutes remain with Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell. Uh, back to the live chat questions. You betcha asks... Why has human spacecraft technology been largely stagnant since the 1950s, all the while we've had the Roswell craft for 75 years? Excellent question. It is. It is. But uh, as we had alluded to in the the, uh, first hour, that uh, I think it 
it's it's quite uh, a, a case of human arrogance. The idea it's like Will Smith in the movie Independence Day that he's able to jump into the cockpit of that un, that extraterrestrial craft and he's able to fly it like he's done it a hundred times before. And uh, Tom and I would suggest that one of the reasons for the cover-up is, is the fact that, as I said earlier, they still can't find the on button. They still cannot, you know, bridge that, you know, that technology. And as a result, what have we gleaned? What have we been able to reverse engineer? And the fact that we're still launching rockets and flying jet, you know, engine aircraft would suggest that um, it's, it's, it's still well beyond our comprehension. And so we shouldn't expect anything, you know, in the near future. And we'd like to believe there have been some near breakthroughs here and there. But, uh, and it's been suggested even fiber optics may be one of them. But uh, that's as close as, as they've come to, uh, you know, actually determining the, the, uh, the nature of the, uh, the uh, technology. All right. Uh, back to the bodies now. Uh, YY asks, were any attempts made to preserve the alien bodies? Well, Glenn Dennis talked about that a little bit, if he's to be believed on this count, about dipping them, I think, in formaldehyde or something. Yes, uh, some of the call, he got uh, at least two calls on how to preserve uh, tissue, uh, organic tissue that had been out in the desert for several days, the best way to preserve it. And uh, so that's the, you know, I mean, they were were dead, and uh, they were out, uh, according to our calculations, they were out on the desert floor from uh, the evening of, July the 2nd until the first discovery which was uh, of the bodies which was on uh, July the uh, 7th I believe when they were discovered north of town and then they were discovered also at another site uh, at the same time so they were out on the desert floor about five days and it's hot hot and sunny out there in, uh, in in the month of July down there in Roswell. So, uh, yes, uh, they, they would be beyond preservation, I believe, uh, the dead ones. And the ones that uh, were with the, the uh, inner cabin at least had a, you know, the, the one that was alive at least had a place to uh, protect them itself from the, the elements uh, when it, uh, with the uh, craft that was still intact. So, uh that's all we know about the preservation uh, in uh, at Wright Field, and later on they originally uh, put kept them on ice. There was they had an ice house there. They were kept on ice, but at some point they uh, obtained uh, cryogenic suspension capsules, and they were we have witness testimony that uh, they were kept in these uh, cryogenic uh, capsules uh, in uh, suspension uh, to preserve them as they were. Uh, Chuck1776 asks, oh, this is a classic story about uh, Jackie Gleason, I, I believe mm-hmm. was living in Florida at the time, and uh, uh, his golfing buddy, President Nixon, uh, drove Gleason to a base and showed Jackie Gleason a, um, well, ja- Chuck's asking about a UFO, but I believe Jackie Gleason uh, claimed that he saw alien bodies. Tom, why don't you, you wrote that section in the uh, Touched by Roswell book, so... Did, did I? Go ahead. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> you did. 
he was a uh, uh, Jackie Gleason was living in. He changed his base of operations from New York City to uh, Miami, Florida, and he was a big golfer. He loved the golf, and so did President Nixon, who had a uh, vacation place in uh, Key Biscayne, Florida. So it was only a matter of time until the two met up on the golf course. Jackie Gleason had a passion for the uh, subject of UFOs at the time, and no doubt when they were on the golf course, uh, some at some point he told Nixon about his uh, interest in UFOs. And uh, so one night, I, I forget what year this was, 1972-73, uh, in that range. Uh, so at midnight one night, uh, there's a knock on Gleason's door, and it's the president. This is according to his uh, wife at the time, Beverly McKittrick, who was also a golfer. And uh, we get the story from her, because uh, Jackie never spoke publicly about it. And uh, so Nixon's at the door. He says, oh, come on, Jackie, I want to show you something. So out they go. And uh, according to the story, Nixon had ditched his uh, security guard, and he was driving the car. There he had the President of the United States driving the car to Homestead Air Force Base in uh, uh, Florida. In they go into a secure facility down the hallway, Jackie, Jackie sees some wreckage. He says, uh, what is that stuff? And so Nixon said, no, follow me. So in they go to a room, and there's, uh, I don't know how many aliens, one or two, I don't know. But according to the story, there were several aliens, uh, little guys with big heads on gurneys that Nixon had shown to him. And that's the essence of the story. And uh, so according to his wife, when Jackie got back home, he was very upset, very or shook up, really shook up. And uh, it, it, he had difficulty getting the story out, but he got it out, and uh, we learned about it from his wife. But that's, that's basically the essence of the story. And obviously the ordeal had inspired Gleason to have quite a UFO book collection when he passed. There were over 700 books that were donated to the University of Florida at Miami. And, and Gleason's home was designed, was shaped like a flying saucer. <laughs> that he intentionally, you know, had, it, uh, had his house uh, constructed to uh, look like uh, a landed UFO. Do you believe that story? Is that possible that the president would have that kind of access? Well, let's keep in mind that back in, at the time of Roswell, Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, as it turns out, one of just a handful, was the chief of staff of the Army. And Roswell was an Army incident. There was no Air Force in July of 1947. So Eisenhower would have been right at the very top of people in the know. Well, who was Eisenhower's vice president? for eight mm -hmm. years, Richard Nixon. So there's good reason to believe that Nixon would have also known directly through his boss. So Excellent it makes Zen story of Gleason and Nixon then all the more conceivable. We can't prove it, but it, it, it's, it's certainly a, a, a very strong possibility. Uh, I think we have time for one more quick one. Craig 
asks, Tom and Don, what are your opinions on ancient alien crash sites and Antarctica crash sites? Well, that's a big question for two minutes. Why don't we talk about Antarctica? You know, there's uh, rumors about this enormous craft there that's emerging from the melting ice down in Antarctica. Uh, any thoughts? Well, I've never heard of that one, so I'll, I'll let Don uh, take Thank care you. of that. Thank uh, you. I have, but again, to me, it's reminiscent of every few years they relocate or they locate Noah's Ark. <laughs> and to date, uh, I don't know that anyone has ever come up with anything conclusive. So let's, we'll, we'll wait and see. But something that big, they shouldn't be able to hide. Um, we know that the Nazis, that the Germans were working, I mean, they had an Arctic base. We know that the Soviets, you know, have had bases within Antarctica and through that region. So let's just say that uh, we're no strangers to such uh, locations. It's a question of then who is the uh, originator of uh, such an object. We know, for example, that they found a, a B-29 submerged with, uh, as far as up in the Arctic Circle and they managed to bring it to the surface. They managed to put new engines on and everything. Terrible story because there was a fire in the radio equipment and they spent over a year salvaging, you know, that. So we know that there are aircraft of our creation at both uh, locations. So we'll wait and see. All right, gentlemen, congratulations on the uh, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell, available at Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, always appreciate your uh, your time and, and uh, enjoy speaking with you once again. Thank you, guys. Our pleasure. Thank Richard. you, Richard, for having us. And we'll do it again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ryan. And my thanks to Carlo. I'll be back next week with a brand new show on shared death experiences with one of the pioneers in the field. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>